You know, that lyric, we are the, the kings and queens of promise, and we are the victim of ourselves. I, I think that may be actually the perfect characterization of how you and I, in 2015, process the concept of royalty. Royalty is one of those things that we kind of understand, and, and we're absolutely, apparently, fascinated by it. I mean, Game of Thrones on HBO continues to dominate cable TV ratings, no matter how amoral the characters may be. It's really pretty staggering. You, this year, as a matter of fact, the E! Network produced their first season of a series entitled simply The Royals. And on and on the story goes. Even our very own Netflix and House of Cards, though it's set in Washington, D.C., it actually kind of plays out like, a, like a, a Shakespearean drama of nobility and their very, 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 very ignoble behavior and their choices that they make on a regular basis. But you can see that we're kind of fascinated by it. And all of these characters that I've just kind of mentioned to you in passing that are, that are examples from modern media kind of remind you of something that Mark Twain once wrote through his character Huckleberry Finn. I'll never forget Mark Twain said that all kings is mostly rapscallions. All kings is mostly rapscallions. That, that's a good word. Say the word rapscallion. rapscallion. I, I think that is a way underused word in our day and age. I think we need to bring rapscallion back, to paraphrase Justin Timberlake. But um, some of you will catch that on the way home. <laughs> Bringing rapscallion back, it just didn't really roll off the tongue. But uh, there are actually, however, some kings that we root for, some kings that we are, are pulling for, and we think, man, that's actually what a king ought to be like. Remember the film, The King's Speech, that told the story of Great Britain's Prince Albert, who became King George VI and had to confront and overcome his speech impediment in order to inspire his countrymen in the throes of World War II. There, there's even a, a classic Christmas carol entitled, Good King Wenceslas. How many of you know the, the, the carol, Good King Wenceslas? Have you ever heard of it? Yeah, that's what happens when you Google in the middle of the week. But anyway, there, there are those kings out there that we pull for and we root for. And, and it's this kind of internal struggle between the kings that we resent and we don't like and the other kings that we do like and are kind of the no, noble and represent our best selves in a position of power that we, we wrestle with. And most of the time, we can, we can keep that imbalance and our ambivalence at bay because we don't really have to mess with royalty a whole lot. Most of us in the United States, I mean, we know that the British have royalty, and if one of them gets married, wake us up or whatever. But, you know, by and large, that's really just kind of a nod to their past anyway. Who cares? But I think this, this internal struggle or ambivalence where royalty is concerned actually represents a more foundational, core struggle that actually requires a, a reconciling or a, a settling, if you will. And that is this reality in my life. I don't mean to project onto you, but I know in my own life, I kind of like power. I like power when I have the power. But as a general rule, we resent power when other people have it, particularly when they have it over us. Just, you know, the fact of the matter is, 
When, when there's a throne to be sat on, we can get kind of comfortable, can't we? I mean, just the fact of the matter is, we like us. Now, now none of us would order this for our homes, hopefully. But I will tell you something interesting. We ordered this for this series we're beginning today. Our staff has been lining up to take pictures sitting in this throne since it showed up on our doorstep. And it actually is kind of, it's fun to sit in. It's kind of funny. You know, this is not actual gold. Don't worry. But it's just gold leaf. But anyway, um, I'm teasing. It's a joke. But we all understand the desire for the throne. I mean, Think about those, those of you who, who may be married, you, you understand what that's like to, to want the power or the power, depending on who has it at any given moment in time. I've got a very good friend of mine that when I call him and say, hey, would y'all like to go out to eat with Julie and me? His response without fail is always, Mac, I would love to. Let me call the power and I will call you back. <laughs> you know who he's talking about, right? And power in relationships kind of ebbs and flows. Sometimes the power ends up in the hands of the people least suited to hold that power. I'm talking about in our homes. Sometimes the kids end up with the power in their hands. And the kids sit on the throne of the home. And the kids are like, no, no. Have you ever been in Target or a store and you've seen a child like pitching a hissy fit? Now, there's a part of us, whenever we see that in somebody else's household happening in public, we're like, <laughs> it ain't me. But if we're honest, if we are kind, we'll go up to that parent facing that little toddler tantrum and go, I've been there. Don't worry about it. It gets better. Unless it doesn't. And I'm, I'm kind of teasing, but the fact of the matter is a lot of people, you may know somebody, you may be somebody who allows their home life and their household to revolve around the kids. And the kids hold all the power and they're not capable of exercising that power. So, so the issue of thrones, the issue of, of power in life is one that resonates on a deeply personal, everyday, day in and day out level, I think, with all of us. It's why we're starting this series today called Thrones, because the fact of the matter is that the life Jesus Christ invites you into, the life that he offers to every single one of us, is a life that requires a radical redefining of what it means to be royal. And to get at this, we're beginning this series today, but there's a passage of Scripture that's kind of the, the baseline for this whole series. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you've got your Bible or your phone is on your Bible, go to 1 Peter chapter 2. And while you're looking up 1 Peter 2, I'm going to tell you that while this is our foundation, we're actually going to do something different over the next few weeks as we go through this series. We're using 1 Peter 2 as a springboard, but the whole series is actually a study of the life of King David. Now, David is somebody that most of us are at least familiar with. If you've, maybe you haven't been in church ever before or for years and years and years, if you've been by an airport bookstore, you've seen David. Malcolm Gladwell's latest book, David and Goliath, tells the story that is by now iconic. It's kind of the iconic 
underdog story of the little shepherd boy who slew the giant in battle one day. And we know a little bit about David, but David's life actually serves as a remarkable template for us to really and truly fully understand this radical redefining of royalty that Jesus Christ invites us into, that he has created us to live in, but we've got to get at what that really and truly looks like. And in order to do that, 1 Peter chapter 2 kind of helps to, to lay the groundwork. This is what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Now, there's a lot packed into that, but I want to focus on the, the purpose behind Peter's letter here. Peter is, of course, one of the apostles. He's the, the apostle upon whom Jesus said he would build the entire church. Peter was the first pastor of the first church ever formed there in Jerusalem. Peter once preached one sermon and 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ and began following him. That is a good day for those of you scoring at home. Peter, Peter was the same one that, that started out as a fisherman. Peter was the one who betrayed Jesus, and yet it was Peter that Jesus used as the cornerstone for what would become this worldwide, global, millennia-long movement known as the church. And Peter is writing this letter to Christ followers who have been dispersed throughout Palestine. They've been dispersed because of persecution. And so he's writing this letter hoping that it ends up in individual churches and individual believers' hands reminding them of the call upon their life, reminding them who they are in God's economy. And he says, you are a chosen people. God chose you. He's called you out. And you are a royal priesthood. When you step into relationship with Christ, you become royalty. Now, this is what's kind of cool. Because you and I look at that and we're like, man, a lot of us right. I didn't know that that was part of the deal. That royalty, sweet. Have you seen the cars that royal people drive? But again, we need to understand Royalty, according to God, is radically redefined from what we understand royalty to be all about. Royalty, as God defines it, is a critical understanding for us to have so that we understand this life, not just intellectually, but so we can actually experience the life that God has created every single one of us to live. But we've got this conflict because of our desire to sit on the throne and the reality that Jesus is the King of kings, that he is the Lord of lords. And so how this plays out creates kind of a, a, a tension and a dynamic in our lives. And it's something that transcends spiritual station. It doesn't matter where you are in your spiritual journey. We all have to reconcile and settle this issue of power and, and I've noticed that for those who are Christians, for people who have placed their faith in Christ, maybe they have been baptized and they've said, I'm all in, I'm imperfect, but I'm all in. For those of us in that camp, there, there's still this internal struggle day in and day out to submit every part of our lives to the lordship, to the kingship of Jesus, to say, you are God, I am not, and that's okay, and I'm going to celebrate it. 
But then there are also those folks, and, and a lot of whom are good friends of mine, who are not yet Christ followers, people that are kind of keeping God at arm's length, or maybe those who have chosen, I'm not going to follow Jesus. And there are usually a lot of ancillary, side street issues connected to that choice, but I've noticed that almost to a person, not entirely, but almost to a person, man, woman, or child, when a person chooses to keep God at arm's length, what they're really, really considering is the issue of the throne. You see, it's tough to get off of the throne. When you sit on the throne, there's a part of you that's kind of like, man, this is nice. It's comfy. I can see everything. I'm, I'm, like, I'm like Jimmy Fallon interviewing his guest. Jimmy's not a tall guy, but he sits about four feet above everybody he interviews. Have you noticed that? And so when we sit on the throne, we're like, whoa, my people, thank you, yes. And of course, we're much more subtle about that in our lives and in our homes. But along comes Jesus and says, it's his place to sit on the throne of our lives. And for a lot of people, it's like, can't do it. I tried. I just, I just can't. I just can't get. And they will not, not cannot, will not abdicate the throne. They won't do it. And I believe with everything I have that it is that willingness to relinquish the royalty of our lives that then opens us up to the life that is truly life. In order to live the life we were created to live, it requires a choice to acknowledge Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords as my king, as my Lord, the one who is large and in charge, better equipped than I am. Because the fact of the matter is, as long as I sit on the throne of my life, I'm exactly like that seven-year-old who controls and dominates the family. I'm not equipped. God didn't create me to live my life as the king of my life. He created me to live in relationship with him as the king of my life. And so this idea of royalty has to be radically redefined in our lives. I think it came home for me in, in a really unusual way. This may surprise some of you. Julie and I have gotten to be around some incredible people throughout our lives. I'm talking about people we grew up with. I'm not even just talking about Lake Hills Church and since then. I mean, we grew up around incredible leaders, servant leaders. My, my mom, an amazing leader. The pastor of my church in Houston, Dr. Ed Young, his son that I worked for, Ed Young, in Dallas, on and on and on. One of the greatest leaders I've ever been around, one of the people that I've learned the most from, just about life and leadership, this may surprise some of you, is actually my father-in-law. Now, that's weird. I don't care who you are. It's weird to have that great a relationship, and also be around somebody who's that strong a leader. And I'll never forget, one time we were in Laurel, Mississippi around Christmas, as we normally do, visiting Julie's family, and I asked her dad something. Now, to, to give you a little bit of backstory, you need to know that Julie's great-grandfather, grandfather and great-uncles, 
started a business in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, back after World War II. They opened a feed store in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, just selling grains and feed to farmers and folks out in the country. And then that kind of grew and developed into when they were selling live chickens to people. And back then, they sold live chickens, not as pets. You know what I'm saying? I mean, people go buy the chickens, take them home, and they'd process them at home. That, ladies and gentlemen, is down-home cooking. That's how it was done in Mississippi back in the 50s. And the company grew and developed some more and ended up buying a processing plant there in Hazelhurst. And so they began selling packaged chicken like you and I buy in the grocery store now. And this was just the family business that Julie's dad, Joe, grew up in. And when Julie and I started dating, he had just become president and COO of the company. At the time, it was a publicly traded company. And the company was doing fine and, and generations before him had kind of very, very meticulously and methodically and incrementally grown the business to when he took over in his mid-40s, like I said, about 25, 26 years ago. Well, since he assumed responsibility for the company, they've grown exponentially under his leadership. They're, they're about 100 times bigger in terms of annual revenue today than they were 25 years ago. I don't care who you are. That's a good return if you're scoring at home. And they, they, again, their company is still based in Laurel, Mississippi. Now, let me say this about Laurel. It is a beautiful place. I mean, beautiful place to visit. And I would suggest to you, Laurel, Mississippi is not exactly a hotbed of vision and creativity. I'm just throwing it out there. Like, there was never any doubt about whether or not Silicon Valley was going to be in California or Laurel, Mississippi. That just was never a discussion or a debate. And so I was fascinated. I, said, I asked jo Julie's dad, Joe, this question. I said, Joe, where did you learn vision? Because the company and his dad, who had been CEO before, were very, very conservative. They grew the company very, very, very slowly and incrementally. And then he took over, and it's you know, kind of grown exponentially. And I'll never forget his answer. He said, son, when I was given the company, I knew I had a responsibility to our shareholders to grow their investment, our employees to grow the company so we could still feed their families, and to our customers to provide a quality product. It was never about the money. Now, Julie's dad does just fine financially. Don't worry about Joe. But I can tell you from having a front row seat with this man for 25 plus years, it's never been about the money. It's that word that he used in his black Bronco that day that's 23 years old. Responsibility. If you want to understand royalty redefined in God's economy, then you understand the role of responsibility. Royalty redefined is more about our responsibility than it is about our rights. It's more about our responsibility than it is about our rights. And that is why David is the perfect example for us to learn from over the next few weeks. David was actually not the first king of Israel. He became the king after a guy by the name of Saul. Now, if you had seen Saul, the Bible tells us that Saul was the homecoming king most likely to succeed, most handsome candidate in all of Israel. Saul had it going on until he didn't. And Saul 
wreck his reign through pride and insecurity and doubt and fear and rage. It's a tragic, tragic story. But it was because of all of those things that God needed and decided to choose a new king. And David would be that king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, there's an amazing story about the day David was anointed king over Israel. The prophet Samuel, who spoke to the nation of Israel on behalf of God, God told to go to the house of a man by the name of Jesse. And there, one of Jesse's sons would be named the next king of Israel. He would be anointed. Now, just as a little side note, Samuel traveled to the hometown of Jesse and his family, which was a little town by the name of Bethlehem. Now, you and I know Bethlehem, and we, we sing the Christmas carol. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. And we get emotional and kind of misty, and we see stars and cows and all that. But at the time, Bethlehem was a podunk, backwater, one-horse town that didn't even have a stoplight. Bethlehem was Israel's cut and shoot. You know what I'm talking about? And this was the hometown of the next king of Israel. And so Samuel shows up on Jesse's door and knocks and says, Jesse, one of your boys is going to be the next king. Now, real quickly, think, just think about this for a second. Put yourself in Jesse's sandals for just a brief moment. Think about what that would be like if the prophet of God knocked on your door and said, one of your boys is going to be the next king of Israel. As a dad, you'd be kind of like, that's right. I made him. I, that, that's my boy. Come on. Go get the oldest one. And that's exactly what happened. They summoned Jesse's oldest son. He walked in the door, and Samuel was immediately struck by, by his presence. He was a good-looking kid, a strapping young man handsome, had a presence to him, and Samuel goes, well, this is the guy. And God says something absolutely fascinating. First of all, God said, nope. In the original Hebrew, that's what he said, nope. He said, he's not the one. You see, God was looking for something beyond appearance and presence, because God knew that because Saul had failed, the next king had to be somebody that he could count on to lead his people over the long haul. You see, God wasn't interested just in Israel acquiring property and possessions. God had a plan for Israel. God knew that the nation of Israel, the welfare of Israel, was ultimately guarding and carrying his plan for the redemption of the entire world, that out of Israel ultimately would come the fulfillment of the promise he had made to Abraham centuries before that he would bless the entire world through his family, which would become a nation, Israel, and that blessing would be the person of Jesus Christ. So God knew that this next king had to have the character. He had to have the wherewithal. He had to have the heart to withstand the rigors of the throne. He had to be someone who could represent God well because God knew that leadership tests our character, that leadership and authority and power is ultimately an amazing, amazing test for the heart. Abraham Lincoln 
once said very famously that all, nearly all men can handle adversity. But if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Now, Abraham Lincoln was very, very smart. And he was dead on. But he was only giving voice to a principle that God had already played out over and over and over again throughout his interaction with humanity. You see, this was the context into which God inserted himself to name the next king of Israel. Jesse's first son comes in. That's not the one. Son number two comes in. That's not the one. Son number three. Seven different sons of Jesse parade in front of the prophet Samuel. None of them are the guy. And so Samuel's starting to get a little bit desperate. He knows he's been sent here by God. Jesse brings all his boys in that he thinks are there, and, and he goes, well, is there anybody else? And Jesse goes, well, I mean, technically I do have another son, but he's the baby of the family. We, we don't even really invite him to dinner. He's out tending the sheep and the goats. I mean, you want to see him, I'll bring him in, but I'm telling you, it's probably one of these other ones. And so they summon the shepherd boy, David. They bring him in from the back 40. And God says to Samuel, that's the one. It's fascinating if you read the story of God from Genesis to Revelation. It's typical for God to choose and use the least likely candidate available. Which I don't know about you, but I take great comfort in. I mean, I'm just telling you, if you're going to think about who's God going to use, I'm not putting myself anywhere near the top 100. <laughs> but you see what God does over and over again. And for God, this radical redefining of royalty, focusing on responsibility instead of rights, is played out in spades in the life of David. Here's what God said to the prophet Samuel. He said, this, don't judge by his appearance, his height, for I have rejected him. I don't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's a heart issue, as is everything in God's economy. It's not about your possessions. It's not about your appearance. It's not about any. It's about your heart. It's about your availability. It's not about your ability. It's about being available and willing to be used by God. And so there that day, God redefined royalty for the nation of Israel and beyond. God said, this is what royalty ought to look like going forward. And then David went back to tending his father's sheep. Now, most people, when they think about royalty, they, they, we're thinking about routine royalty as a general rule. Routine royalty basically looks at royalty as entitlement, as what the royals deserve. What are they entitled to by virtue of their title? And again, isn't this fascinating how it plays out even in 2015? Even though we, we don't live in a, in a country of nobility, but man, 
Have you ever heard of somebody maybe in our world or our household who feels a sense of entitlement? Uh-oh. Now he's gone from preaching to meddling. That sense of entitlement. Well, where, where we just think, it's about me. I'm going to get on the throne. That's routine royalty. The first kind of characteristic of routine royalty is power for the sake of power. Power for the sake of power. Just, just hanging on to it. Don't raise your hand, but my guess is somebody here works with somebody who hangs on to power just for the sake of power. For no other reason than just to say, I've got the power. I can make you do this. I say frog. You say how high. Power for the sake of power. Routine royalty is wealth and privilege for selfish consumption. Just, just what's in it for me. Materialism. Now, I know in the friendly confines of a Sunday morning service, it's easy to kind of go, boy, that's right. That, that is true. I, I know some materialistic people. There, there are some materialistic people out there in the world. But you know what I've noticed? I, personally, have never completely conquered the monster of materialism. I, I've never talked to anybody. I've never met anybody who's completely conquered it once and for all. Some people are affected by it more than others. But it, it's kind of one of those things you have. It's like if you were going to go back to the days of kings and queens and royalty and olden times, it, it's kind of like that dragon that just won't die. It's just <sighs> fire breathing. It'll bring it, man. That, that's, that's routine royalty. And then a third characteristic of routine royalty is pleasure on command. Just a good time had by all whenever we feel like it. Isn't that true in Austin? I mean, this is a city. We, we're kind of built on pleasure here in Austin, aren't we? What do people think? When you tell people I'm from Austin, from around the country, or you're talking to somebody, what do they say? Oh, man, I hear that's a cool town. That's a cool town. You know what you tell them? Say, that's true. That's why I live there. That was funnier than you just laughed. But anyway, I'm going to keep going. <laughs> it is a cool town, but, but there are a lot of our neighbors and friends who, it's really just all about having a good time. That, that's, that's the center of their universe. And we understand that. As a matter of fact, David's son, Solomon, understood that. There, there were seasons of Solomon's life where he walked with God, no doubt about it. But there are also seasons where he walked away from God. And in one of those seasons away from God, the Bible tells us that Solomon was married to 300 women. But wait, there's more. And 700 concubines. That exhausts me just trying to think about getting your mind around it. A thousand that, that's a bad idea. I, I'm, just, I'm just putting it out there. I'm not being judgmental. I'm not being harsh. I'm just saying, that's a bad idea. Have you ever seen Sister Wives on TV? What do they have, like five or six? That dude's got some challenges, man. I, just keeping it, I'm just putting it out there. A thousand Sister Wives. 
Wow, that, that's, that, that's exhausting. But that's routine royalty. Now, royalty redefined is something entirely different. Royalty redefined is not royalty as entitlement. Royalty redefined is royalty as responsibility. And you see this from the very early stages of David's life. I mentioned earlier the day where he killed Goliath and he went out to the battle line and he took his, his slingshot and he, he slung you know, one of the smooth stones, hit Goliath right in the forehead, he fell dead. But the backstory to that day is actually fascinating. Did you know that David never was supposed to have been at the battle lines that day? David was not enlisted as a soldier in Saul's army. As a matter of fact, David was still back on daddy's farm tending the sheep and the goats. The only reason he was there that day is because Jesse sent some bread and cheese with David to his brothers who were soldiers. So David just comes skipping up with the bread and the cheese. <laughs> and while he's there, Goliath steps out and starts taunting the nation of Israel, Goliath, the Philistine, the giant. Most biblical scholars believe he was about eight feet tall. Eight feet tall, that's a that's monster, huge. Make Shaq run and hide. And he'd step out and he'd taunt the nation of Israel, send one of your men to me and I will kill him like the dog he is. But if he kills me, all of Philistine will serve Israel. <laughs> Just like that. Well, David hears this, and David takes it personally. And David says, who's this guy? And as a matter of fact, he heard the soldiers talking because Saul had said, whoever kills Goliath, he would give his daughter to in marriage, and they would never have to pay taxes in Israel again. So there, there were some perks headed David's way. But... In order to understand why David did what he did, you've got to look at what he said to Goliath immediately before taking his life. He was talking about not power for the sake of power, but power for the sake of a greater purpose. There was a purpose to the power that David had that day when he stepped out to face Goliath. And his purpose was this. He said, this day... The Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistines. Now, that doesn't sound very Christian, does it? I mean, that, you, you read that, and you're like, whoa, David was a little irritated. But look at what he says. He says, he keeps going, and he says, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. You see, David knew this battle was his. That, that sounds kind of crazy. But you see, Goliath walked out to see David, and he had this massive shield and this huge spear, and he was covered to head to toe in armor. And David walked out with a slingshot, like Opie. <laughs> but you see, David had been faithful. All those years he had been back on daddy's farm, he had been out there protecting his father's sheep and goats. 
from bears and lions. And he had protected them with this sling. Now, when you and I hear slingshot, we, we think, but it was really something that was like two leather straps that had a pouch in the middle of it. And the slingers of that day, that, that was a soldier, that was a military position was to be a slinger. But David had used that skill protecting the sheep and the goats from the bears and the lions. And he'd gotten very good at it. Slingers of that day could hit a target the size of a plate at 100 yards. No scope. And so David knew in this battle, standing across the battlefield from Goliath, that spear and that shield and his armor, David would have been dead in hand to hand, no doubt. But David was able to stand at a distance from Goliath, pull out one of those five smooth stones, put it in the pouch. Goliath did. But the reason he did it was because Goliath and the Philistine army had defied the God of Israel. David knew he had the power because he had done it. He had killed lions and bears years before, multiple times. But in this particular moment, he knew that his power was to be used for a greater purpose. Now, as we mentioned, there were going to be some perks and some privileges. He was going to get the king's daughter. He was never going to have to pay taxes in Israel. This was, you know, this was a good gig. But the reason David stepped into that battle line that day was because God had been defied. The purposes of God had been challenged and affronted. And he knew that the power God had entrusted to him was to be used for a purpose greater than himself. That's royalty redefined. True, redefined royalty sees whatever power or influence or leadership position you have as an opportunity to move the purposes of God forward. I think about a friend of mine who's a member of our church, CEO of a large organization. Every single day he gets up and goes to work in the medical field. I know for a fact he's there not only to make sure that people get well and their surgeries go well, but ultimately he's there to move the kingdom of God forward. And I know that because I know this man and I've seen it happen and he's got an influence and a reach and a scope that I'll never know. But he's chosen to adopt this redefined picture of royalty. Now, if you'll remember, there, there was also a little, little something about wealth in there. Royalty redefined sees wealth and privilege in terms of selfless service. Wealth and privilege are not necessarily in and of themselves bad. As long as you understand in redefined royalty, they're there to be used for selfless service. If you go kind of toward the end of David's life, David has spent years ruling Israel. He's been incredibly successful in battle. He's had some significant failings, and we'll talk about those. But toward the end of his life, David decides that his, his passion for God, his, his desire to worship God, compels him to want to build a temple. David says over and over again, I live in this huge palace with amazing ceilings and structure, and yet we worship God in kind of a ramshackle, run-down place. I want to build a temple. And God says, David, you're not going to build my temple. You're not going to do it because you're a man of war. 
There's blood on your hands, and so you can't build my temple, but I will allow you to fund the building of the temple. I'll allow you to design the temple and to participate in that way, but you can't put a hand to it. And so David, at one point in his career, comes to a place where he wants to build an altar to God. And there's a place just outside of Jerusalem where, where they would thresh the grain and the wheat. Threshing just separating the kernels from the husk. And the guy who owned this threshing floor was a guy by the name of Arana. And David goes to Arana and says, I want to buy your threshing floor because I want to build an altar to God there. And that is the place that would become Mount Moriah, that would become the, the place where the temple would be built. And when Arana is confronted by David about buying this piece of land. He says, my king, no, 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 you don't have to buy it from me. Let me give it to you. But David does something absolutely fascinating. Check this out. The king replied to Arana, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Isn't that amazing? That even as the king, when he's offered free land, he says, no, 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 I'm going to use the wealth and the privilege that God has given me. I'm going to use it to worship, and I'm going to use it for selfless service. And so I, I want this to cost me something. I, I, want, I want to feel this gift. I'm not just throwing pocket change that we pulled out of the sofas or the throne in the, in the palace. I'm not just going to give you some of my royal robes that I don't wear anymore or kind of out of season. He goes, no, I, I want to I sacrifice. I, I want to feel this. That is royalty redefined. That, that is royalty as responsibility and not as a right. And, and that's who David was. But, but there's one more thing that I think is really important because we, we talked about how routine royalty has, has pleasure on demand. David lived out royalty redefined by taking incredible joy in command. David took huge joy in, in the commands that God had given him, in his positions of influence and leadership. He took joy in it. Let me ask you a question. How many of you are parent you're a mom or a dad let me just see a show of hands if you're a mom or a dad whoa hands are going up everywhere the buses will wait okay how many of you let me I'm sorry how many of us know that while being a parent is a tremendous blessing it's not always fun hands are going up everywhere thank you so much yes it's not I mean there are times when as a parent you're just like I'm out I am leaving the room. I'm leaving the house. I'm coming back, but I'm leaving because you people are wearing me slap out. Anybody want to help me preach that sermon? I'm just, I'm just asking. Am I the only one? Okay. <clears throat> and, and I've done that. There have been times when, I've look, when I looked at Emily and Joseph, I was like, <laughs> We'll finish this later. You know, you know that feeling? And you, you, you withdraw and you, and you get away and you're kind of like, okay. All right. 
You can quit a job. I mean, but you, you can't quit on parenting. And so you, you, you go, okay, I'm, I'm almost positive God gave us these kids. Okay, so if God gave them to me, then he expects me to do something with them. No matter how little I have to work with. I'm teasing. Mostly. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get back in the game. When you understand that you are called to royalty for a purpose greater than yourself... There, there's an empowering joy in that. It's strange. You can get tired. You, you can get exhausted. You can get discouraged. But when it's all said and done, you remember your calling. Remember Peter's telling Christians in New Testament, Palestine, don't forget you're a royal priesthood. You're scattered right now. You're persecuted. People want to kill you because of your faith. But don't forget you're a royal priesthood. Look at what David said. I love this passage. He said, How the king rejoices in your strength, O Lord. He shouts with joy because you give him victory. How the king rejoices. There's joy in command. There's joy, there's joy in the responsibility, the calling that God's placed on our lives. And isn't it fascinating? If you remember, David, remember we, we said he wrote the 23rd Psalm and he said, the Lord is my shepherd. And David knew what he was writing about because he had been a shepherd. Everything he had done for the sheep, God had done for him. And so he wrote these psalms of praise and worship when he was a shepherd that nobody knew about and his dad didn't even want to bring in. And he was writing these psalms of praise and adoration and celebration when he's the king, when he's amassed immense victories and fame and wealth. And he says, how the king rejoices. There's joy in this command and this calling that God's given us. Yes, you're going to get tired. Yes, you'll be discouraged. But there's joy to be had in the calling. In this redefined sense of royalty. You know, for centuries, for millennia really, royalty was determined by birth. If you were born into the royal family, particularly if you were the firstborn son, you were the heir apparent. You were the king in waiting. Prince Charles. Prince William. And people just knew when you were born, that's the guy. I don't even need to apply for the job. It's already taken. In a spiritual sense, when a person is born again, they are born into this royal priesthood. They are endowed with certain inalienable rights as a king, as a queen, a joint heir with Christ, the Bible calls us. But to be born again means not that you are born a second time, it means that you respond to the grace initiative of Jesus. That you step outside of your comfort zone and say, I need a king 
Because I am not. I'm not the one God created to sit on the throne of my life. Jesus is the one God created to sit on the throne of my life. And so a man or a woman, a student, says, Jesus, take the throne. Jesus, step into that position in my life. And when that happens, that is a man, that is a woman, that is a student who is born again into royalty. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And just a brief, brief moment as you bow your heads to know that this is sacred ground that we're on. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, please guard this moment. Not moving or stirring for any reason whatsoever because this is sacred ground. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that relationship with Jesus, we want to invite you to do it. Just to pray right where you're sitting. A prayer of commitment. Just to say, just silently, just talk to God. Just say, Jesus, I invite you to take the throne of my life. Right here, right now, I am willingly stepping aside. I admit I like it. I, I like sitting on the throne, but I'm choosing to trust you from this moment forward. I confess my sin to you. I claim your forgiveness, and I give you my life to follow you, Jesus, my King. With every head bowed and every eye closed for just a moment more, because it's a sacred moment. If that's your prayer and you meant it, I want to invite you just right where you are to make sure that you understand this is the most important moment of your life. This is it. This is the beginning. And as such, it's imperative that you mark this moment spiritually and personally and know that it's real and it happened. And so with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to just ask you, if you just pray that prayer, if you would just raise your hand briefly but unmistakably, just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for a moment. Because this moment really matters. And as you hold your hand up, you're marking this knowing that there probably will come a day when you ask yourself, man, I wonder if that was real. This is real. It matters forever. And so you mark it in your heart and there's an opportunity also to connect, not only relationally with God, which you just did, but also relationally with Jesus' church. It's just a family of faith. And like every family, we are absolutely imperfect, but we offer ourselves to you as a family, a place to belong, a place to grow, a place where we need you. We invite you to be a part of that royal priesthood. And so when our service ends in just a few minutes, I want to ask you, 
if you just take that program that you got when you came in and notice in there there's a, a connection card, a connect card, if you'll just fill it out and indicate there, I gave my life to Christ today. And before you leave today, just tear that off at the perforation and hand it to somebody probably wearing a, a blue LHC shirt that's got the logo on it. It's one of our ushers. Or maybe someone at the blue tent, that little canopy out front as you exit. Because it's about a personal relationship with God and with God's people. That's why we're here. And so as a church, we celebrate that moment with you. As you put your hands down, we like to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.